Let's face it, cyber attackers have the advantage. ExtraHop is on a mission to help you take it back. Regain the upper hand with security that can't be undermined, outsmarted, or compromised. When you don't have to choose between protecting your business and moving it forward, that's security uncompromised. See how it works in the full product demo, free online at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. Workloads protected by VMware are the safest workloads in the multi-cloud. Private cloud, public cloud, any cloud. Stronger, with distributed protection to the API and everything east-west, inside, and cross-cloud. Stronger, with three layers of detection, trusting nothing and seeing everything, even the best hidden bad actors. Stronger, with an SE Labs AAA certified advanced NDR that brings the multi-cloud together for the win. You've got workloads, we've got security. VMware security, simply stronger. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash VMware to learn more. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. Also keep an eye out for some new podcasts we might have uh, showing up pretty soon. I'm sure we'll, we'll do some announcements on those once they're ready. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms. Also, we had an absolute blast putting together this last year's uh, Security Weekly Unlocked virtual event. All presentations are available on demand for your viewing pleasure at securityweekly.com forward slash unlocked. Now, on to the Enterprise Security Weekly news. Uh, so, Tyler, Katie, I think unicorns are off the endangered list at this point. I think that goes without saying. Yeah, yeah. It, it, we just need a new category. You know, we've had to adjust just like, you know, buying eggs is $5 per dozen. Um, you know, these crazy valuations and these crazy funding amounts, it, I think we're just going to have to get used to them. So let, let me throw a question to you, Adrian. If, if unicorns are off the table and unicorns are kind of just the way life is now, should we be focusing on predicting, analyzing, finding, or determining the first um, unicorns that have to take down rounds? The ones that have to then admit that they were wrong and taking so much crazy amount of money? Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I, I think with so many unicorns, you know, we, we have to look at other ways of evaluating these companies, too. And, and it's tough because they're private. Like, you know, we don't get to see their revenue. We don't get to see their customer count. You know, sometimes based on how the product works, there's clever ways of, of finding out some of that information, uh, seeing how much uh, market, uh, you know, how, how good they are engaging and getting traction in the market. You know, sometimes you can go in social media you know, and see uh, how much how much buzz they're getting. You know, naturally, not just their marketing team going out and and blasting stuff out there. No offense uh, or anything, but um, but yeah, I, I mean, we need a some other way of evaluating these companies at this point because the numbers we're looking at clearly, you know, it, it's not a, a multiple of ARR or anything like that. So I don't know. I don't. I don't know how we evaluate them anymore. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a good like, answer to that. Yeah, I, I don't either. That's the thing. It's almost like it's ceasing to become a business metric and has turned into a vanity metric, right? Whoever yeah. can 
pull the most money, have the biggest valuation, pump the biggest ego, etc. I certainly haven't done the math, but it would be interesting uh, for someone to to sit down and see what the multiples on these are averaging and try to try to look at category, you know, is, you know, we were just talking about attack surface management, you know, is that getting valued higher than, I don't know, some, you know, some other category? Yeah, the heart, the, the heart geography, of the could totally- is it, you know, certain type of company are, for instance, are founders who come from really big companies more successful than founders who grew up in an internal department in Microsoft or whatever the yep. case may be. Um, yeah, I would I would say good chunks of that data analysis has already been completed. Um, the harder part, though, is getting revenue numbers from, oh, my phone's going bonkers, sorry about the beeping, is getting revenue numbers for privately held companies. So it's harder to do... Sure do this for unicorns because they're privately held they don't many of them don't disclose their revenue so it's almost impossible to get some of the metrics at that level now we could easily do it for public companies because they're required by sec regulation to publish all those metrics for us and we could back into a lot of that information post public but private is just a different world yeah and well, I, I think I, you're you know it's hard enough to get even a real customer count on a lot of these customers too so yeah. I assume that the VCs have better insight, but they're probably not going to disclose that kind of data either. No way. They're not incented to. They're they're not incented to disclose that information in any way, shape, or form either. And they're probably, you know, from fiduciary responsibility to the business, they're they're not going to disclose it simply by the fact that they're not allowed to. I think you're totally right about it being a vanity metric too, but it becomes more than that. It becomes... Uh, almost like a a KPI goal because once you can say that you're a unicorn, you know that helps you kind of self-realize that goal, right? Like that's really good marketing. Uh, as a new company, you're looking to uh, you know to give potential you know prospects confidence in the company, you know. And what's better than saying we're worth over a billion dollars? Like like that's a pretty good metric for uh, for confidence there. So. Now that that just becomes like a milestone on the company growth, you know, so if they need to, you know, hey, we need our valuation to be a billion dollars. What what do we need to do to to be able to have that press release? You know, I'm, I'm sure it's happening much easier now that it's kind of viewed that way as, as I think, like a milestone for the for the company to hit. Absolutely. And so which which news articles are do we have any news articles with uh, the new birth of our uh, our one horned friends? Yeah. Um, so the first one, uh, I, I think one password was already a unicorn. Oh, they were um, definitely- but the la- you know, I, I think I do have a partial answer to your question, though. I, I, I think based on what we can see, I, I think it's going to have to be those down rounds, it's going to have to be acquisitions. It's going to have to be comps. Like, like we're going to have to wait, uh, you know, for the stuff that we can see, you know, to be able to, you know, I, I don't think there's any way to, to do it at this point, you know, with these, I think we're at 41 unicorns in InfoSec. Well, here's, if, if, here's the counter, here's the counterpoint, Adrian, are we in a, just a new era where, you know, again, thanks to inflation, market dynamics, et cetera, et cetera, where, I mean, just deals are this size now. Like, we're yeah. going to have to, as a market, figure out how to handle this. Like, Microsoft just acquired Activision yesterday or the day before yesterday for something like $68 billion. 
yeah. for a video game company. Holy smokes. Like, is that the new norm? Is is one billion just but, a baby number in today's economy? But yes. Uh, I mean, the, that could be the new reality. Two, Microsoft is a $2 million market cap. Uh, you've got to keep in mind, um, Call of Duty makes $5 million a day, every day. You know, it's not like a movie where they make $5 million or a certain amount of millions on opening weekend, and then it trails off. That's year-round every year. And, you know, like Call of Duty alone, I think, is $1.8 billion in revenue a year. So $68 uh, billion is uh, 7.5x on, on revenue yeah. for them. So it's not even a huge yeah. multiple. Because yeah, they, I don't they got the, the scandal discount. Yeah, I don't want to come across as the guy that's always like, oh, my God, overinflated, overinflated, inflated. Maybe. I just might also be out of touch with the current pricing, right, with the current expectations of what is going to be the new era for the next 10 years. So I think there's an easy argument to be made on the flip side of that coin as well. There are people saying that it's contracting. And, and I think we, we can all agree that, you know, it, this is not something – that can continue forever like like there's there's they can't all 41 of these unicorns can't ipo you know so i i think what we might see is uh, some some new changes and where they go from there i don't know if they stay private i don't know if pe shops are the answer here we'll see more pe shops kind of shifting uh towards the the security space and and being that kind of post vc exit uh that these companies need i don't know and that's my ringer. You can ignore that. <laughs> no, no, it's, I, I, I literally had some notes here that I, I wanted to have this conversation. So I'm, I'm glad you launched into it uh, because I, I was going to anyway. Well, it's, um, uh, it's something I'm passionate about. So it's an easy topic for me, Adrian. Yeah. Yeah. You're coming up again because your name is actually in some of these press releases. Oh, no. So, oh, no. Don't don't do this to me. Don't call me out. <laughs> and I have to turn off the stupid ringer. It's going do not disturb mode right now. Okay. Um, so yeah, one password. Um, you know, this one's huge. I think it's partially because they're B two C and B two B. You know, they they started out as consumer, entirely consumer, and I, I think um, you know, coming up with enterprise products has has really helped them. They're in the right place at the right time. I think to to kind of jump on that bandwagon. But it's one of the. This is one of the few truly huge security unicorns at a uh, $6.8 billion valuation where I, th I think it's somewhat deserved. You know, one password was bootstrapped for a long time. So they've got really solid ARR, you know, they, they not somebody who just came out of nowhere uh, with a marketing campaign and a year later, you know, they're, they're claiming to be a unicorn. So, so I, I do like that. We're seeing, you know, it feels a little bit more deserved here, but yeah, the six hundred twenty million they raised is is only a Series C, partially because they were bootstrapped for so long. So they didn't start uh, uh, getting investments until they're already an established company. Yeah, that I mean that that's just a, a successful result. I think you know it's interesting to me. I look at a lot of companies um, quite frequently, and you know what I don't see enough of is those that solve a problem with a very simple solution and when you can yeah. do that you can make a massive massive company and that's what you know that's what uh, uh that's what these guys did one password solves a problem with a simple straightforward solution that just works and you know there's something to be said for hey 
I got the latest AI, I got the latest this, the latest that, the latest innovation. But if you can't make that easy to use and simple and straightforward for your buyer, yeah. you're not going to win. And they did a really good what, job of solving that problem. When your sales cycle is one day, I <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can do some impressive stuff. Um, so they say they're going to spend some of this on acquisitions. You know, so kind of curious if, if you guys have any guesses on, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe they go the zero trust route deeper into MFA, API security, maybe. But gosh, there's so many different ways they can play that. Go go ahead, Katie, you go first. Passwordless. Yeah. Yeah, it makes I mean, sense. Yeah, there's one password, but passwordless would make sense as an augmentation you know, uh, employee verification, things of that nature, sort of tying it all into the whole passwordless journey. And especially with hybrid workforces and the way the world's going, providing lots of different options. I mean, we, we've definitely not seen the death of passwords that people have been either predicting or hoping for for the last 15 years or so. Um, but, it, but it's more likely and with workplaces as you know, remote and, and as distributed as they are, this this would definitely make, a, I think, a, a good play, both passwordless and, and the employee verification. I just went to a doctor's appointment yesterday and they did a whole online verification, document verification thing, and I, I felt pretty confident in it. And I can't necessarily say I would have felt that way two years ago, sending pictures of my driver's license and medical right. insurance card and things of that nature. Um, but some of these solutions are pretty good and, and that would all, it would be more of a platform than one password has right now. Yeah, I would say yeah. that I think that is a, a absolute great view. I think MSA, MFA is another natural view to push into trying to own more of that. I think permission sprawl, um, is another interesting component. I think cloud permissions is interesting, right? Starting to go beyond authentication and focusing on authorization, permission, permissions, tracking, all of those kinds of services from an enterprise level. Yeah, yeah. It seems like there's, uh, they, they probably have enough money to do both, but they they could go deeper into what they already do. You know, like the, the I like the passwordless uh, guest there, uh, or something adjacent. You know, with uh, which I think the permissions uh, authorization stuff would be a, a good adjacent move for them. All right, Devo uh, announces a quarter billion in funding and looks small <laughs> compared to some of the other <laughs> stuff. It's like, you know, it's it's. I think it's a Series E, something like that. Um, obviously, it's not small. I mean, that, that's still a really big raise. Uh, valuation is one point five billion. So, so I don't know. Maybe we have forty-two unicorns in security. I don't know. I don't know. They're a baby unicorn. But um, sorry, Katie. What was that? Said they're a baby unicorn. If they're a only baby. one point two billion. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Now we have baby unicorns. <laughs> oh boy. Um. Yeah, so I mean, good growth. You know, I think they started off. You know, their 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 pitch was uh, discount Splunk, and I, I think that's changed somewhat. You know, now that they're they're more mature, and um, you know, I, I I don't know what the exit looks like for a a sim, you know, that that or a log management solution. 
uh, at this point. You know, I, I think they tend to be a little bit more stable than other security companies out there. So I could see somebody like a Devo eventually going public. And not at a 1.5 billion valuation in today's world. They got a long way to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it is Series E. So, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe acquisition exit, maybe private equity. Who knows? Uh, private oh, equity okay. tends to, I don't think they, they match what PE shops are usually looking for right now. Sorry, Katie. I just said it's a lot of debt. So many of yeah. these companies, so much, so much debt. Yeah. Uh, we've got a few other here. I, I haven't, I haven't jumped uh, real deep into. Uh, we've got Germany so safe raised seventy three million in a Series B to address human error in cyber. One trend that I liked in some of these press releases is they're getting really creative. Uh, and, and this is the first of two news stories we have in here. Uh, it's worth a click to the TechCrunch article uh, for Germany So Safe. This is uh, article number, what is it? Uh, three on our list here. Uh, <laughs> the whole thing is done like a, like a, like a rave. It's advertised like <laughs> a rave or something like that. Like they're standing in front of DJ equipment, you know, it's like an album. with the, yeah, like an album with yeah, it says new album Human Firewall out now. It's it's very clever. It's very creative. I think better than the the usual hey, let's all line up on the front steps uh, and take you a know, group photo. I think that tees up a very interesting uh, discussion about cyber marketing, uh, cybersecurity related marketing, and how how difficult it is to stand out in the, in the noise that is cybersecurity, right? And you know, it used to be the uh, the funding announcements were so rare, you didn't have to pull any tricks. You could just put your, your people on the front page. There you go. People would cover it because it was, you know, $20 million raised or $50 million raised. And now because <laughs> the numbers are so enormous, you have to do something to stand out in that crowd. And it's similar to the problem cybersecurity marketing people in general face across the board is how do you stand out in such a noisy, you know, overinflated situation. And so, you know, I give them kudos as, as you know, we always pick on companies that their press releases use buzzwords or whatever. They're they're You don't understand what they're doing. You know what? I give these guys kudos for going outside the box, doing something different. It caught our eye and made us talk about them, which is exactly what the goal of it was. Yeah. And I've got to say this very easily could have been heavily cringeworthy. And, and it's not. It, they, they did a pretty good job at, at you know, n nothing on the design or the photo, you know, makes me want to close the tab as, as quickly as possible. <laughs> uh, like, it, I think it actually did edge, a decent though. job. At, so I would say it's on, on the edge, Adrian. <laughs> What's that? It's on, it's on the edge, but, but the you know, the point is valid for sure, Tyler, that it's really hard to stand out. In the first segment, we were talking about attack surface management and Yes, I, I know that there's a definition, but it's been bastardized by so many companies. Everybody takes these buzzwords and and molds them to whatever suits. And so the market itself is just so fuzzy. So you do have to stand out. But that balance of being on the edge, edge of cringeworthy is, uh, you know, it could fail miserably. Um but what, what's the alternative? Having another, you know, 
going to another conference when we finally get back to conferences and having another coffee bar or whatever the case may be, something that is just so standard. You can't go so over the top that people are like, what the hell is this? But in this case, this company, they're in Germany. They're known for a pretty big techno scene. They're sort of tying it together, maybe a little loosely, but it is different. And with even the the words that we use to describe our vendor companies in security, so similar and so convoluted and so mushed together, there has yeah. to be something. You can't go over the top and do something stupid and make yourself look ridiculous because then people are going to be like, no, this, this company isn't taking themselves seriously. Why should I take their tech seriously? Mm-hmm. But the industry is almost pricing itself out, pricing in quotes, itself out of standard marketing. Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting topic. I think we could do an hour segment on this alone, given um, Katie's and my connection to marketing and cybersecurity. But um, I was recently privy to a thread on a cybersecurity marketer society uh, Slack that I'm part of, where um, somebody said that their CEO was telling them they had to do TikToks. And it was like, oh, okay. no. How do I? But here's the here's the interesting thing. You know, a couple of a couple of the comments were, "Oh, dumbest thing ever." CEO should never ask that. And a couple of our comments, and this is kind of my side of it, is, "What's the danger there? What if you did one or two and saw whether there was an ROI?" I think the reality of cybersecurity yeah. marketing today is you have to be willing to try new things, and you just have to be open and authentic to your voice, whatever your voice is. And if your voice is like super stodgy gov commentary then stick to that voice but a lot of them now like a lot of us are we err on the side of hey let's just go have fun talk about some fun stuff and it's resonating better and chopping through the through the clutter well and it's so cheap to try why wouldn't you i mean in in the past like like if you're taking a chance on an rsa booth uh, on like a theme or something you're thinking of doing for rsa you know, like you got to make peace with that because it's a it's another year before the next RSA. But, you know, TikTok, you know, you're just putting some of your time into it, you know, and, and uh, you know, give it a good go in a couple of weeks. Generally, you're going to know if it's working or not. And you can, you know, just kind of cut your losses. Exactly. Exactly. Low risk, you know, but probably low return, but some potential to maybe catch catch fire. So give it a go. The trick is not coming off as cheeky, too cheeky, too insincere to who you are and to your to your audience and if you can do that you're in good shape well, and, and, I and think the other thing one more one more key to it because i saw this in a company i used to work with um, with some of the marketing team their whole goal was to go viral and this one person it was one person not the whole marketing team the whole goal was to go viral and if that's the goal you're already doing it wrong. Your whole mm-hmm, right. goal should be one conversion into a sale. It will pay for itself. Almost any campaign, if you make one sale, but it should not be to blow up on TikTok or Instagram or you know, back then it was Twitter. It should absolutely, like you said, be authentic to your brand, to your voice, and serve the purpose of getting a sale. It can't just be, well, I'm going to be another Kardashian. Yeah. I mean, if you're B2C, you know, it's different, right? Right. I think it's more valuable, you know, going, going uh, uh, viral is, is a bit more valuable there. Viral goes viral based on 
interesting content. That that's what viral is in that world, right? So, you know, I think create you, your goal should be to create interesting content that generates brand recognition, awareness, and hopefully converts into an eventual sale. And if you go viral, it's a byproduct, not not an intention. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You said it way better yeah. than I did. Yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So so the the other one here. So to to bookend with the with the. You know the the interesting content here that that grabs you. Permiso is the other one. If you go to permiso.io, you know you can immediately see. You know this stands out from you know other other websites you've seen. E- even the press release, which you know only has a single image on it, um, yeah, it, it really stands out. The the brand, uh, um, uh, you know, the the whole brand standard here, basically. And this one, uh, Tyler, if, if you want to tell us a little bit about, well, before we leave the the previous one, uh, SoSafe, Germany SoSafe is basically like a no before competitor. You know, I think that uh, new album, Human Firewall, pr- pretty much tells you everything you need to know about what they do. Uh, but Permiso, I don't know a whole lot about yet, but I suspect Tyler knows more. I, I do know a fair amount as I am an investor in Permiso. Um, you know, it, it's it's really focused on cloud-based uh, detection and response primarily focused on uh, authentication authorization issues. That's that's the differentiation. That's the core offering. I definitely I, I can't give the pitch. I'm definitely not a pro at the pitch. I haven't worked with them at that level. Um, but to your point, I wanted to bring up the um, if you go to the Permiso P E R M I S O dot I O, you go to Permiso dot I O, you'll see the the brand um, the brand creation that they have going on. And it's exactly to my point that I was making on the former article. If you know the guys, if you know Paul and Jason and the crew over there, you know that this is their person. This is totally true to who those guys are. Fun, interesting, lighthearted. Don't take themselves too seriously, but want to set out to build something amazing. And when you look at permiso.io, you look at the core webpage, that's exactly how it comes across, right? I mean, they they use fun uh, visuals. They use right there on the main page in parentheses. We are not a CSP. I'm like just calling out direct fun commentary about markets. They have little hidden gems of you know like a little burglar guy, little little hacker burglar guy embedded in the cloud. It's just a really really cool vibe. And I think the reason why it resonates for me, and it may not resonate for everybody, but here's the thing: they're being true to who they are, which means I don't think they can fail when it comes to the marketing brand here. Yeah, agreed. You know, especially when when part of that branding is is being clear and straightforward, like that it's just always appreciated. I, I've never understood the style where it's like, well, let's let's hide what we do in as many layers of bu- buzzwords as possible. Not that that's the goal they're going after, you know, but at some point somebody needs to read that and say, what the hell is this saying? Like, I, you know, I don't know what we do, much less anybody else. Like, we need to, we need to change this, but, you know, doesn't happen. Yeah, at the top of the about page, it, the the headline is how we roll. I love that. And it's got like fist yeah. bumping. You can't beat that. It just is, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like it a lot. I, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a vendor website with a fixed width font. As their default <laughs> font, which, which I love for sure. There, it's it's very readable. You know, like very quickly, you can find what you're looking for in this website. Um, yeah, I love it. So, 
yeah, get, getting a lot of things right there. Um, definitely a case study and how to do a press release and, and how to do marketing when, when launching a, a company there for, for anybody that, that needs a reference. Yeah. And the but, net net on that article, the, the net not net on depending. that article. They don't have a marketing person on staff yet. No, they don't. They're actually looking oh, for wow. a marketing. So if, if there's marketing leaders who are watching this and are interested, please feel free to reach out to me. I can make the introduction appropriately. But the net net on this article is they did a $10 million, um, I believe they're calling it a seed, a $10 million seed uh, yep. with uh, Rain Capital Foundation 11.2, um, a handful of angels, including myself, Jason Chan, a bunch of other, uh, Caleb Sima, Saima, a bunch of other very notable angels have gotten behind them. And I think they're well poised to to come out firing. So I'm pretty, pretty excited for them to hop out of stealth this week. I have a really important question, Tyler, for you about how you make investment choices. You hate chocolate. Yes. And Jason says right on his bio that his favorite thing, what one of his two favorite things is chocolate. How, how did you pick this company? It seems like a complete mismatch. So, so it's it's an excellent question, and I have a two-part answer. The first part is I pick my companies using a dartboard and a dart. That's literally how I pick my companies. Excellent. Uh, and so far, my accuracy has been really not very good, but I'm working on it and trying to get better. Um, the other side of that storyline is I have known um, Paul Nguyen for over 20 years. I haven't known Jason nearly as long. I invested in Paul. I really don't like Jason. No, I'm just kidding. He's a great guy other other than his his love and affinity of chocolate, which I just don't understand. I don't know what Rita's gelatus is, but I, I would be interested to learn about that from Paul. Meh, he 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 just he's trying to come across smarter than he is. We'll we'll not worry about that. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> I love those guys. I'm totally playing. They're great guys. Um I, I look forward to seeing this company do very well. All right. Um so next on the list, we've got um, Verica, which is interesting. We, we've seen a few companies in this category, but they call it continuous verification. But it kind of comes across as like a fuzzing tool, you know, so, so kind of like uh, an extension of vulnerability management, except the goal here is to make stuff fall over. You know, so th the goal is, is, you know, SRE, you know, more resilient uh, uh, systems. So yeah, I, I think it's interesting that you can buy a tool to do this now. Basically, you know, just like a a flamethrower, you can <laughs> you can turn on your products and infrastructure. Yeah, no, Verica is a really interesting company. Good friend of mine, James Wick, it works there. Um, the entire. I, I don't want to say the entire because I have not had a briefing from them in quite a while, but I do want to say that my understanding is that it is focused on chaos, what they call chaos engineering, which is literally what you're describing. Adrian, chuck a flamethrower at your environment and determine if it can withstand that flamethrower, right? Um, you yeah. know, shake it, uh, make it go through earthquakes, make it go through flamethrowers, make it go through a truck running it over, right? Can it actually withstand the chaos that is reality? Um, so yeah. I think conceptually, it's a really neat idea. And uh, they've been at it for a little bit now. And, um, you know, good, good for them on the progress and, and, and announcements that they're making. I'm, I, I love James, and I wish him the best of luck as well. Yeah, you remember slash dotting back in the day? Like, it was both the best and worst thing that could ha happen to a company. Because if, <laughs> if your company, if your website showed up in slash dot, 
you'd get all that click through just like literally millions of people in 10 minutes, you know, yeah. you just have slash dot up and, and be refreshing uh, the page. And it was so rare that companies could withstand that assault. Like almost always slash dotting meant that your site went down, that too many people hit your site and it couldn't handle the load. And of course, this is pre cloud or anything like that. You know, and, you know, if there was any kind of auto scaling technology out there, most companies didn't have it or use it. But um, yeah, it, you know, it's it's really interesting, this whole concept of chaos engineering, continuous verification. It really lends itself now to the way that modern systems and applications are architected in the sense that they're actually designed to be completely resilient. And if you can get to a high enough level of resiliency, then the chaos becomes irrelevant, right? And I think that's lending itself well and giving rise to um, site reliability engineering type um, roles, type expertise, the ability to architect and to design something in a cloud native way that can withstand anything. And and I think it's a really cool way of, of building applications from the bottom up. Is this a little bit of an expansion of breach and attack simulation plus pen testing on steroids built with the purpose of testing resilience and reliability. That's a really interesting analogy, Katie. Like, I don't think I ever made that leap in my brain um, because I think that the difference is it's not just an outward facing attack and breach simulation in the sense that it's looking to breach things. It's more, um, you know, what if what if your API went down within your system or what if your, um, you know, your internal API got flooded with a bunch of garbage? Um, it's not just an outside view. It's actually chaos from within the application and within the system as well, which I think it gives it a holistic view, making mm -hmm. SRE a very, very important way to build things. I think another way of looking at it is, is you're probably not going to have the security team shopping for or buying a, um, a chaos engineering product. It's probably going to be more out of like, like a DevOps team or cloud engineering team, I would say. Or yeah, wh wherever your SREs are. I'm not sure where SREs live. Yeah, I think it ends up being all of the above. That's the interesting thing. Like, I don't think they're going to sell only to security, although they, I'm sure security will look into it and want purchase of it. But engineering could want it. Uh, architecture could want it. Like, there's a lot of different groups that could demand this. Mm -hmm. If they have, a, if they're big enough, they have a business continuity group. They'll want part of it. Sure, sure. All right. Uh, moving on, Tromso raised a three point million dollars seed funding round, and I'm not sure I fully grok what they're doing here. We see some of the, some similar names um, investing here. As far as individuals go, they say more than twenty five leading CISOs, including Caleb. How do you say his last name? I thought Sima. Simon. So did I, but okay. the funny thing with Caleb, I've known him for 20 years, calling him Caleb Sima. He only corrected me last year that it's Sima. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. So, yeah, he he's uh, invested in this one as well. So, yeah, apparently I, I didn't know that there was a Silicon Valley CISO investments, uh, you know, that, that CISOs could go through to do this. I, I assume it eases the paperwork on them to, to invest in stuff. But, yeah, um, I'm assuming this is, I haven't read the, the full, is it the Silicon Valley Angel Group that did it? The Silicon Valley CISO Angel Group? Yeah, it's, uh, it's Silicon Valley CISO Investments. Yeah, I yeah, think so if it's the one I think it is, it's a group of CISOs that came together to form an angel syndicate. 
and they do mm-hmm. their own their own deal review, their own due diligence, and then as a group they decide whether they want to, uh, yeah, Silicon Valley CISO Investments, whether they want to invest in that um, in that company as a syndicate. And I don't think they're even required to invest as a, as individuals. I think it's they do all the due diligence and then they make the call on an individual basis whether they want to get involved. That's interesting. Yeah, so you know, no fund to raise, no LPs, just um, but but you still do some of the stuff that a VC would do that that due diligence. That's correct. I've actually done. I've actually led um, angel syndicates. I've done an angel syndicate into a deal as well, where you brought together. I brought together about a dozen, fifteen angels, and we did a, a did a syndicated deal, um, taking a good chunk of the pre-seed round for a for a cyber company that is yet unannounced. Yeah, so so it sounds like an AppSec tool. I, I don't fully understand what they're doing here, but you know, it seems like uh, one of these tools where you both get some visibility from it. You know, you get notified of uh, you know anomalies or, or things, you know, go, going out of standard. You know, so kind of a guardrails concept here, and um, and yeah, yeah, it sounds like they're aiming to make it easier for devs and security folks to work together. So, I don't know. I don't know who's buying the product. I'm I'm all for that, but honestly, I think the I don't don't know much about what they do at all. I won't claim that that I do. But yeah. that Silicon Valley Angel CISO Angel Group, if they get in, it's usually a very good signal of positivity on the project because they 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 know what they need. They know what their pain is, right? So yeah. they're going to pick the ones exactly. that yeah. help them the most. Yeah. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, let's see. So another big one, big news today is uh, STG, Symphony Technology Group, which is the company that acquired McAfee, FireEye, RSA, you know, a ton of other security companies, uh, you know, has spit out a new company based just around McAfee's XDR product. Uh, the new company is called Trellix. And uh, and they say they're gonna they're gonna continue doing this. The the next one to get spit out will be McAfee's Sassy product, uh, which has CASB, SWG, and ZTNA functionality in it. So th- this is something I didn't really. You know, usually when you see PE firms pick up a bunch of security companies, they're aiming to slam them together, build an even bigger one, and then IPO that or something like that. So this is kind of new. On me, I can't recall seeing the opposite happen, where they take a bunch of big companies and spit them out as as smaller companies. But it seems like seems less risky. I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe not. Right, because if you take the concept of of the PE roll up, where you pull them pull them together, the idea is there that they cross sell and upsell, and they're able to increase sales across the board, increase efficiencies, decrease uh, extra extra overhead. Right, there's a lot of ways that you can. Just make the um, make the math of the business look better, and then drive a higher valuation. Um, the spin out routine is the more the old school kind of buy it, chop it up, and get value from it model, which is kind of an interesting approach, right? Where you buy, it's like buying, um, you know, buying a shopping mall and then chopping up and and leasing out the individual components. Although leasing isn't the right analogy, but you get the point, right? You might be right. able to. To get more by buying well it's like buying a plot of land and then chopping it up and selling homes on it right 
um, you get more on the on the value of the of the purchase by having the individual components. So it's not about increasing efficiencies as so much it is it is kind of having each individual part be worth more than than the whole. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning also that before these companies even went to STG, they're already chopped up somewhat uh, and had, you know, that that's a trend we've seen are the consumer portions of some of these security companies, uh, Norton LifeLock, uh, McAfee's consumer side, uh, FireEye got split between the Mandiant side and the FireEye product side. So, you know, uh, more of a services side versus non-services, but they both have services. It's <laughs> it's not a clean line with that one. Um, but yeah, it's, before, it's, you leave it's, this topic, it's, before you leave this topic, Adrian, though, I do want to point yeah. out that name and I'm not the one that came up with this, although I did think of it before I saw the picture is the name 100 <laughs> percent reminds me of like uh, a, a merging between like, you know, Trello and Skrillex. Which I just like visually yeah. just blows my mind. A picture of Skrillex like doing doing like Trello work at a at a company or something. It's the most ridiculous thing ever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That you're not alone. You're not alone. I, I've heard a few people uh, mention that. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, yeah, no idea where. I, I mean, it's better than FireEye or you know you know, danger black or whatever. It's uh, at least it's unique and pronounceable. Moving on. Let's see. We, we talked about um, Microsoft's enormous acquisition, which isn't really security. It's just more of a included as commentary on the market. Um, the supply chain one. So story number 11, did you guys have a chance to take a look at this one? No, that would involve that would involve me doing prep work, Adrian, and I'm not good at that. <laughs> yeah, so basically, you know, the the GCC compiler, you know, the the Fortran component of it, the the G Fortran, the the people that maintain that project, it's like a tiny handful of people. They're really busy. Basically, the the age old story you hear about open source maintenance, and somebody submitted, uh, you know, this this. It wasn't a bug. It was compatibility with some standard from 2018 that the compiler did did not, uh, uh, you know, they had not been brought up to spec to meet the standard. And they're basically requesting somebody somebody fix it and do it. And and it's again, it's it's a story we've all heard where you know the the giant multinational or the person representing the giant multinational government or or you know, consulting with the government is asking that this be done quickly. And they're basically saying, look, we, we got no money, no resources. Like uh, you'll get it when you get it and you'll be happy with it. And um, just a reminder that, you know, open source is still this very, very fragile uh, component. I, I think in, in with security impl implications as well as, um, uh, you know, just, uh, business implications you know somebody just jumped in there you know be, because nobody had time to do it and offered a patch and I, I don't know how much they look at that patch they squint at that patch or they just slap it in there and move on with the next thing you know i don't, I don't know on the if project. that person was trustworthy you know who knows 
Yeah, it fully depends on the project and depends on the the diligence of the maintainer. My brother's big into, or used to be. I don't think he does so much anymore, but he used to be big into open source, and you know, he had he had commit bits on I think OpenBSD and a bunch of other places. And the reality is, the <laughs> I always jokingly say that open source really just means two guys with no money working on a project in their garage. That's really what open source means, with a few exceptions, right? With the with the exceptions of the major enormous projects that have thousands of people working on the vast majority of open source is literally unmaintained garbage. Um, And so when something like this pops up and nothing has ever changed in that code repo for a decade or more, who's the one person you can call on to fix it? That's 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 the underlying question. And do they even have time or care? Yeah, and and the response here, you know, this is what made it into the title of the the um, um, you know that that brought it to my attention. The Y Combinator news link here, uh, you know, in response to well, are are they willing to donate some money or like like pay for somebody's time to do this? And the response is the customer has nuclear weapons; they do not do bounty, and. Uh, mm-hmm. And still, they're they're willing to just take this patch. You know, again, I I, I don't know what level of uh, um, due diligence goes into looking at that before it gets thrown in. But you know, Fortran runs in a lot of sensitive and critical environments. So um, I think my favorite metaphor, uh, open source metaphor, is is that it's it's not free as in beer. It's free as in piano. Like, <laughs> sure, it's free, but it, it's going to be a heavy lift. <laughs> I was wondering where that was going. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, think about it like, like you can get a free piano all day, every day, you know, because people don't want to have to deal with it. They don't, they don't want to have to move it. That makes sense. Adrian, you're not yeah. wrong. So yeah, just because it's free doesn't mean it's easy. It, you know, is another way of saying that, I guess. Um, See, number 12 uh, is a great read. It's a very long read, but it's it's real world um, people relating real world stories of how they compromise CI/CD pipelines. Uh, excellent source of scenarios if you need scenarios to go in your environment and uh, and do some simulations and and see if you would uh, be be vulnerable to any of these techniques used uh, to to compromise these these pipelines. Very good read. Uh, from NCC Group, who's always been generous sharing tools and knowledge. Great blog posts, great tools. Um, let's see what else we have here. Uh, number 15 was an interesting one. Tyler, I, th- I think you might be interested in that since it's basically, you know, we, we've seen many books kind of covering the history of hacking, you know, and this report is uh, is yet another one. Uh, had a few novel things in it that I have not seen in any, any of the books I've read, uh, you know, some novel perspective, but, um, uh, but still a good primer. Like if, if you yeah. had somebody coming to do marketing or sales for your company and you wanted to give them kind of like the perspective, the, the flavor of like, like the, the, the hacking scene and, and part of the security industry, this would be a, a good paper to throw at them that they can oh. con- consume in a few hours. It's absolutely a phenomenal paper. My biggest concern with this paper is how freaking old it makes me feel. Like, really, (laughs) I don't like that aspect of it because I worked with half of the companies in here. I remember the moments that a lot of this stuff happened. So, uh, yeah, Yeah. I 
I highly recommend it for a read, especially for younger people that want to hear a little bit about the history of the of the business, where it came from, how it came out of the, you know, the um, kind of a more scene aspect, occult scene aspect of where we were in the 80s and 90s um, and even back to the 50s. So definitely recommend giving it a read. I think it's um, a great free resource uh, versus buying, you know, a history book on the subject. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then um, I thought I hadn't thought about this in a hot minute, but the uh, Joe Sullivan, who's now the CISO over at Cloudflare, was the CISO at Uber. And, uh, you know, if you all remember a couple of years ago, uh, got got in trouble for paying uh, a bounty to some researchers. Uh, for those listening, I'm doing air quotes with, with my fingers. <laughs> But, yeah, interesting. So criminal charges here, uh, you know, wire fraud, basically, you know, so, some of the the same charges that uh, um, Elizabeth Holmes uh, faced as the CEO of Theranos in, in the recent trial. So I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have thoughts on whether Joe's going to see jail time or anything like that. But I think this is a, a very different situation from Theranos. You know, I, I think it's easy to make an argument that he did something wrong that he should not have done, you know, especially not not notifying uh, the right people. But, you know, I, I, I don't know if uh, I think it's three charges with a maximum of 20 years. You know, I, I don't know if criminal charges is the right way to to handle this. But, you know, maybe the the U.S. government's looking to set a precedent. I do have a perspective on it, and I wrote a, a blog post about it a while back, and it's hard to say. I'm not an insider. I don't know Joe personally. I don't know the situation in any more depth than anybody else could read if they wanted to allocate a few hours to it. So there's a huge caveat there. But my point of view back then, and I think it remains my point of view now, is that Yes, I understand he's saying that he was just one person within a larger committee, within a larger organization that had the responsibility or even the authority to go and declare a breach or disclose certain things. Let's say that's all true and he was just following the policy and following what he was told by his company. Um, there is the issue that he is or was the chief security officer, chief information security officer. And so he has a responsibility not just to law enforcement, not just to his company, but but to himself and, and to the customers and and to the people, the Uber drivers in this particular case, to make sure that he's doing the right thing. Yeah. And even if the company is not doing the right thing, he needed to be doing the right thing. And maybe that meant side channel. And Mark Rash, who's quoted in this article, said it in the article. I actually spoke with Mark for a couple of hours way back before I wrote my blog. And we agree that even if Joe felt that he was hamstrung by his organization, and again, I know nothing about him or the situation, the internal politicking, because internal politicking can be. Oh, we, we know some of the internal politicking at Uber at the time, and it was not not a well, positive yeah, yeah, environment. Yeah, I'm you know I'm trying to trying to wash my hands a little <laughs> clean here, but you know internal politicking at any company can be really challenging 
personally and professionally. And a lot of the times those two things come into massive conflict. But in my opinion, Joe should at very least have gotten himself a, a, you know, a record of what was going on, written it down, taken it to a private lawyer, said, here's what's going on. Here's what I know. Here's my responsibility as a CISO. Here's my responsibility as the person who knows all of these things. And if he didn't do that, just falling back on, you know, hey, I wasn't part of the committee. I I don't buy it. I don't buy it because if you have any kind of moral standards, if you're in security, you say, listen, I know this is wrong. And if my company is going to tell me I'm not allowed to say this or I'm not allowed to do that, you have to, it has to be a CYA. Because if you're in security, your job is to protect the confidentiality, integrity and availability of systems. And that didn't happen. And I'm not victim shaming and saying it shouldn't have happened because it can happen to anybody. That's not the point. The point was that he he did cover it up, whether it was intentionally or because he felt pressured to do so. He didn't have any sort of backup to say, I know this is wrong. I'm not allowed to go out of my chain of command here, but I know this is wrong. And at very least, that's what he should have done. Everything else aside, there's so much more to unpack in this. But at very least, he should have had some kind of auditable trail that he knew that he, that he could show that he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was saying. He knew that this was a problem. He knew the repercussions of it. So so I have a question and, and you know, nothing that you said is wrong. You're 100 percent spot on. I, I think your commentary is wonderful. But. In the article, it says prosecutors subsequently filed charges against the two men, the, the the perpetrators of the attack, over the hack of Uber and a later hack against Lynda.com, in which they also attempted to extort the business into paying hush money to not make details of the breach public. My question to you guys, both Adrian and Katie, is at what point does bug bounties, external bug bounties, turn into hush money and you know covering up a breach? It's such well, I think a that's the case he was trying to, the point he was trying to make is that, you know, hey, there can be a, a super fine line here. And there are some people who say that he paid hush money. He reframed it as a bug bounty. Yeah, so I mean, that's my, that's my theory as to why I think the government might, you know, be, be going hard with this is they don't want to see these bug bounty platforms turn into extortion payment gateways. Well, that that's exactly my point. As now, what what does this do to the bug bounty programs that are out there? Like, does it change the dynamics? Now, I know most bug bounty, I believe, and I don't. I'm not a CISO. I'm a retired tech guy. I'm out of the tech uh, operations side of the business. I'm in the business side now. But I believe that most of those like bug crowd platforms require them the bug bounty people to be pre-registered, sign a bunch of documentation, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And I think that should absolve them from this issue but i think it's definitely a gray area and certainly back where back in 1617 whenever this occurred 15 16 17 it was very gray area back then six years ago seven years ago as to what constitutes a bug bounty and this has forever been a question all the way back to the early days of of responsible disclosure in the early mid 90s i remember right it's like well if i find a flaw am i an attacker if i tell you am i hacking you to have found the flaw 
Or and when I tell you, am I being a good citizen and getting it reported? And that's just a very gray area. And I know I'll probably get flamed online for even bringing it up as a gray area. But I think there's there's interesting debates to be had there. I'm definitely not taking either side. So you can if you search Casey Ellis and Uber, you can probably find Casey Ellis on several podcasts addressing just that question. He's probably the best person to answer that, sure. you know, being being the founder of, of Bug Crowd. But that that was absolutely like one of the hot topics of the moment when that came out, because um, clearly there needed to be more due diligence around, uh, you know, who who's on the platform, you know, what their intent is, you know, how, how they got this data, all, all that stuff, wh- whether it was consensual. Um, but, yeah, yeah, that that was um, and I, I don't think it's clean and dry. I think there's ways that you could still abuse the platforms for this kind of thing. But certainly after this happened, I I think they did start looking close more closely. And I think this is probably for the legit bug bounty companies, a worst case scenario nightmare, you know, it's something that could end their business if, if it goes bad. And so they're probably hyper aware of how this could look for them or impact them in the future. If somebody were to suggest that, oh, okay, you know, we're going to hire people who are maybe, maybe not legitimate. And then it turns into some kind of a CD dealing. Mm-hmm. All right, let's, uh, let's move on here. Johnny, I think you have a video. So I don't know how closely you guys looked at the squirrel stories, if at all. But um, this this may look like the old Asteroids game, but this is a video of somebody actually shutting down, what do they call them in Kubernetes? Pods. Pods. <laughs> so this is, actually, this is actually connected to a Kubernetes uh, backend. And in that video, that little ship going pew pew is shutting down pods. It has to be the, if, if more ops management tools were like that, uh, I'm, I'm sure we could attract more people to security. That's I 100% remember, and a, um, <laughs> I, re- I 100% remember a tool in the earlier Linux days in the mid to early to early two thousands. That was exactly the same thing it was asteroids and you shot processes on your local machine. Oh, nice. Yeah. A process manager as a, uh, <laughs> yep. that's great. It was fantastic. Um, that's probably what it was inspired by then. Nice. Um, the only other one I'm going to ask you to click here is number 19. So if you click the link for the squirrel story, number 19, it takes to. you to a page where you can spend, oh, the drop ended, but I can tell you uh, this was a $50,000 NFT and I, so I, I've been just trying to figure out the NFT space and and how how people are finding value in it. And, and, and I find the details of this interesting. So first of all, I think Autograph is one of the most honest NFT marketplaces out there saying, hey, look, this is just another form of collectibles. And I, I, I totally agree. That, that makes a lot of sense to me, resonates with me. But I'm still having a hard time seeing how you're going to sell 29 editions. Like, it'd be one thing if you got a life-size bronze statue, because statue, this was 50K. 
50K for this NFT for all 29 editions of this NFT. And I think to even be able to buy these, you had to buy two other cheaper Tom Brady NFTs to even be qualified to buy these 29. So so there's and, a little known fact, Adrian, the NFT actually stands for not for Tyler. Not for Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> and then you scroll down to Tom Brady college resume, and there, there's like five different tiers of his college resume. And anywhere from like 500 to like 2,000 editions of each one, like how is that even collectible? Like in, in those quantities for what they're wanting well, the to sell first it for. One there, the mystery container has 16,600. Yeah. Why? Why? I, I, I don't think these, I don't know. I don't think these are going to be worth anything. <laughs> Like I've seen some F NFTs where they actually send you something physical, like when Beeple uh, was selling some of his artwork, you actually got this really cool physical thing in the mail, which was like a, a tablet that displayed the artwork and it had like a little hole in it so you could recharge the tablet. And it was encased yeah. in like two inches of plexiglass, um, had holograms, had a, had a placard, like it was something you could put on a shelf. You can so, point to it. You could say, I supported people, an artist that I really like, and people can, in real life, come and see your NFT. And, and, and that makes a little, maybe I'm just being old. I don't know. So, so Adrian, let's set up a time. You and I can deep dive this, but without trying to rat hole this conversation too far, I will tell you NFTs come in a handful of different flavors. There's art NFTs, which is, in sure. my opinion, pretty much garbage, right? They're collectibles, exactly what you're talking about. There's NFTs tied to the ownership of physical items. There's NFTs that map to copyright um, copyright or trademark ownership of something. There's NFTs that map to virtual items, digital items. There's NFTs that match to map to metaverse land plots. So there's there's lots of different versions of NFTs. You need to start to think of an NFT as literally literally a representation of ownership of one thing. That's literally as simple as you you could you could make it. Well, I, um, I, I call it a digital receipt. About an NFT metaverse conversation. So, yeah, I, I usually just refer to it as a digital receipt. It's an easy way to look at it. Sure. Yeah, I I, I do have a um, Zawaba my my Twitter handle dot crypto, which you know the the idea there is you know it makes it easier to send and receive money. You know, and it can also be used as your authentication to log on to something. Like you don't need a username and password anymore. You can use this NFT, you know, at, for authentication. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see if that catches on. <laughs> Since it was something you only buy once, I I went ahead and grabbed it just to see what the experience, what the process was like. And sure. I've got it sitting in a wallet. And, and um, yeah. For what it's worth, I will never buy any Tom Brady anything. So NFT, jersey, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm not buying it. There are other uh, – Autograph has has other uh, sports stars on there. I think DraftKings is getting into this as well. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, Nike has a patent on – they call them crypto kickies. NFT-based sneakers. Yeah, I could. Uh, yeah, we could talk for hours on this topic. I'm rat hole central, staying out of it. <laughs> but we're not going to. <laughs> exactly. Oh, 
Oh, latest thing. Uh, Larry uh, just let me know. Larry, um, uh, Paul Security Weekly, Larry. Why am I blanking on his last name? Pesci. Pesci thank you. Um, made me aware of CryptoCVEs.com where you can buy an NFT of a CVE, of a vulnerability. Ooh, that could be super interesting. So if I'm, let me see, if I'm a researcher, a zero D researcher, I can register my, my flaw with a CVE, buy the CVE, own the CVE, the rights to use said CVE. Maybe potentially, I mean, I don't know the legal wrangling, but you could own that and then license it to Tenable, Qualys, et cetera, to be able to report on it. You probably want to think about coming up with a name and a logo for that vulnerability as well, if you want to maximize that. Better yet, I'm just going to create the company that sells and registers CVEs for um, for security <laughs> researchers and middle market. I'll run the market on it. Yep, it's it's a weird world, folks. <laughs> and on, <laughs> on on that weird note, thanks Tyler and Katie for joining me today. And thanks to everybody who watched or listened today. Uh, we will be back next week. See you then.